Please open up your copy of God's Word to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4. Our reading this morning will be verses 1 through 6. It's good to be back in Ephesians. If you're using one of the Bibles in the back, you'll find this on page 977. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning and to see your faces. And uh, we're back in Ephesians after a summer break. Um, who's pumped to be back in Ephesians? Show of hands. Good. Well, we're, uh, that's for those of you I hope to convince you after the time that, that, uh, that you're excited to. Or maybe you're just excited about not having to raise your hand in church, which I can totally understand with that too. So, uh, We got several away uh, for Labor Day. Um, weekend, including two of our pastors, Pastor Jonathan and Pastor Ted, are both in Hilton Head, South Carolina for the week uh, on vacation. So pray for them that they'll come back um, refreshed and renewed from their uh, time together this week. Well, I want to try to, in about a minute, summarize March to May for us as a church because we spent that time uh, covering Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. And it's been a while since we've been in Ephesians, so some review might be helpful. And I'm just going to review it very simple, simply. Uh, first of all, chapters 1 through 3 are basically a summary of all that God has done in Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit to make a church happen. Okay? It's all about what God is doing as a way of displaying his glory and greatness to the universe by the establishing of a people for his praise. That's the point of not only the book of Ephesians, but the point of God's work of redemption and and his work of creation and the the, the plan for the fall and and what would come as a result of the fall and sin and and how how a church would, would be raised up that would... In the language of verse 10 of chapter 1, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So, but chapter 4 marks a pretty dramatic shift uh, in terms of content. Because up to this point in chapters 1 through 3, Paul has largely been doing a lot of teaching. He's been doing a lot of theology. He's been talking doctrine. What has God done? So in chapter 4, he's going to make a shift to practice. So what effect should the doctrine that he's been talking about, what effect has the teaching and the instruction he's been giving, how's that to shape our lives? So he moves from theology to practice, from doctrine to duty, from creed to conduct, from exposition and teaching to exhortation and challenge, from indicative, what God indicates or what he says is true, to imperative, what he commands in light of that. And that is so important. This sets apart Christianity from almost every other world religion. Now, lots of world religions will say, here's what God said, here's what you must do. But where Christianity differs is is the fact that what God does up front is provide everything that we need in order to do what he commands. So it's motivated by grace. It's motivated by forgiveness and reconciliation. See, all the stuff that we need to do, we already have. All the people that we need to be, we already are. That's the difference. We are constituted and made to be united, and now we're called to live into that and live out of that. That's very different from saying, all right, you don't have this, go after it. What Christianity does is said, you have this, now live out of it. It's very different. It's the difference between salvation by grace and salvation by works. 
And because God is a God who intends to glorify his grace and our salvation, all of what he is calling us to be and do is rooted and founded in that. So in chapter 4, Paul's going to exhort the Ephesian church about three main themes. And we're going to take up these three themes over the next three weeks. And they are three essential marks, we could say, of a healthy church. And those marks are unity, verses 1 through 6, which is what we're going to consider this week. Diversity, verses 7 through 12. And maturity, verses 13 through 16. Unity, diversity, and maturity. Now, you might be asking yourself, what's the big deal about all this? I mean... Is church unity really that big a deal? I mean, why is it such a big deal? Well, remember this. Church unity is not fundamentally about getting people to get along. That's a very low-level goal. It's not about getting people to quit arguing and fighting over the color of carpet in church or, or wrangling with the pastors about the direction and mission of the church. It's not about Christians fighting with other Christians, although sadly, because of the entrance of sin into the world, that is all too common. And it's a reality that our text anticipates. It's not about that. It's, unity is not fundamentally about trying to get people to get along. It's about the reflection of a Trinitarian reality in the world. That's what it's about. A Trinitarian God. We are made in the image of a Trinitarian God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he exists in loving unity in the midst of diversity. And has desired to display himself through a unified church made up of diverse, the diversity of the nations. That is what unity is about, and that's why it is so important. Because it's about reflecting accurately who our God is. The church is intended to be a display of the person of God. And therefore, the church must be unified because God is unified. And the church must be diverse because God is diverse. God is one unified essence Existing in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. The Spirit's not the Father. They are all distinct from each other. They are nevertheless one God. They exist in three persons that have equal equal glory, equal power, equal authority, but nevertheless function differently. They have different roles. The Spirit didn't die for your sins. The Father doesn't indwell you. But in the sense that they all overlap and and, and involve each other, that's true. But as as far as their personhood goes and their distinctness, they each have individual roles. So the purpose of the gospel, the purpose of the message that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save us from our sins, rising from the dead, the purpose of all of that is to create a unified church. It's to bring that reality about. Think about the flow of Ephesians here. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about every spiritual blessing that we have in Christ. And then he launches into a prayer of thanksgiving, starting in verse 15, that we would understand this and that we would rejoice in this and live in the good of this, of these blessings. Then he reminds us in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, of what God has done to save us individually. Then in verses 11 through chapter Three verse or chapter two verse eleven through chapter three verse thirteen, he begins to unpack what this church is that we're saved out of the world into. We're saved out of the out of out of sin, out of death, into this new community that God is creating, namely the church. And the purpose of the gospel is to bring that about. John seventeen twenty one. You remember this text in the in the in the midst of Jesus' prayer. What is the thing that is on his mind in John 17, that great chapter that that more than any other chapter shows us what inner Trinitarian life is all about? Because it's the Son praying to the Father in the Spirit. And what is he praying about? The oneness of God's people. John chapter 17, verse 21, that they all may be one. This is Jesus requesting something of the Father. He's praying for us. He says, that they may all be one, 
just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you see what the purpose of unity is? It's revealing the person of God so that people would know God and that people who do not yet know him would know him. So unity in the church is imperative. It's critical. It's so important for the display of God's glory and the advancement of his mission. That's why we're concerned about unity because we care about what people think about God when they look at us. Okay? It's not first and foremost how we can get people to get along. It's what do people think about God when they see Heritage Baptist Church functioning together. And that, as a Christian, is what should concern you. Not whether or not all your preferences are getting met. Not whether or not everything's happening the way you want it to happen. But whether or not God is being known and displayed. And that happens through unity... Verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4, diversity, verses 7 through 12, which we're going to look at next week, and maturity, verses 13 through 16. Because it's going to take maturity among us as God's people to live unified and diverse. Because we, we, we don't do that naturally, do we? We cannot naturally, in our flesh, apart from dependence on the Spirit, make a unified diversity happen. It cannot happen because we like people who are like us. That's natural man. That's man un- unredeemed, not indwelt by the Spirit. The church is not that. We are the temple of the living God, brothers and sisters. Which means that we can, because of the gospel, and because of the work of the Spirit in our lives, we can be what the world does not understand which is a group of people from various socioeconomic backgrounds, various nations, various languages, various backgrounds, various family situations, various jobs, various likes and dislikes. And we cannot just tolerate each other. We can love each other and prefer each other and welcome each other and accept each other. And believe me, when the world sees that, they take notice. Because that cannot be produced by the arm of the flesh, by a good program. You can get people in a room. That's no problem. You can get them in rows. That's no problem. You can't get them sacrificing for each other, laying down their preferences for each other, loving each other, praying for one another, preferring one another, seeking one another's benefit and good. You can't get that unless the spirit is in those people. And guess what? He is. He's in us, brothers and sisters, and he's moving us in that great direction. So that's why it's so important. I just, I just felt burdened. Before we ever get to the how-tos, which is what most of this sermon is, because it's, it's just Paul teaching us how to maintain unity. Before I ever say anything about that, it's just so important that we underscore why we're doing this. You've got to get the why before the how. Otherwise, the how just, okay, so that's our duty. We're supposed to do those three things. But then by Monday morning, No motivation to do that. It's too hard. The only way that we're going to stay in the game with this and stay after it, because it's hard. It's hard to pursue unity. It's hard to pursue it and value diversity and welcome it. It's hard to do that. So what's going to keep us in the game, though, is the vision of who God is. We want our God to be known and seen in this city. And the way it's going to happen is when people see a unified body consisting of diverse gifts and members functioning together and living together on his mission. So let's turn to verse 1 through 6, verses 1 through 6 this morning, and talk about how we maintain unity in the church, because that's the theme of this passage, and that's what Paul's trying to trying to teach. So after he's explained how the church came into existence in chapters one through three, talking about all this Jew Gentile diversity. I mean, that's cultural diversity. If there ever was cultural diversity, how he's brought them together in one body. Now he's going to appeal to them to maintain it. So here's the three ways we are going to maintain unity in the church. First one, we must be compelled by our calling. We must be compelled by our calling. Verse 1. 
I therefore, Paul writing under the inspiration of God's Spirit, says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is awesome. This is Christianity. This is Paul saying, church, I want you to live up to your privileges. I want you to understand what the greatness and glory of your calling, what God has made you to be, and I want you to become that. So Paul is clear that we as Christians, we have a calling. And the idea of calling goes back to the very beginning of the letter. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Chapter 1, verse 3. Just think about this with me for a second. Let's just summarize our calling. Our calling has to do with what God has done for us in order to make us Christians. The Father chose us. He predestined us before time to be adopted into his family, Ephesians 1, 4. And then the Son was sent in order to pay for our sins and redeem us so that the Father could adopt us into his family. And the Spirit came and indwelled us and sealed us for the day of redemption. So the Trinity has been involved in your life from eternity past. The Trinity has loved you and pursued you. In eternity, it was God the Father predestining you and choosing you. In in time, it was the Son being sent 2,000 years ago with your name on his heart. And he died for you and purchased you. And in time, the Holy Spirit came to you at some point in your life and regenerated you and made you alive. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And by grace you were saved, not as a result of works, but through faith alone in Christ, God saved you. And then you were created in Christ Jesus, chapter 2, verse 10, for good works. And those good works are lived out in the context largely of the church, including the work and and family. We'll get to that later. But immediately in the context of the church, and we have been, we, we have been, Brought together, as one commentator said, we are a community of pardoned rebels. We've all been saved and delivered from our sin, and now we've been united in this group of people called the church. And Paul says in chapter 3 that this is the mystery that God has been working out in the course of history. Chapter 3, verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles, that's us, that's non-Jewish people, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And this happened, verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities and the heavenly places. And Paul says in verse 13, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. Paul suffered to make this thing a reality. He suffered to take the gospel to the Gentiles so that they would hear about Christ. He suffered the persecution of Jews who did not want him to do that and saw him as a traitor. And he suffered, read the book of Acts, he suffered to try to unite this church. He was set apart as an apostle to the Gentiles, and he went to the Gentiles, and he preached the gospel to them, and they believed, and they became part of the true people of God, along with believing Jews. And then he went to jail for this, because he's preaching this gospel. And he's writing to them in in verse 1, and he's saying, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I got some skin in this game, he says, Ephesians. I urge you, maintain the unity that I'm sitting in prison for. Would you please devote yourself as much as I have been devoted to this? I urge you as a prisoner of the Lord to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Now that obviously means something, doesn't it? It means that we can live and walk and behave in an unworthy manner. We can live in such a way that our conduct, our behavior, the way we're we're living is not worthy of this calling. It's not worthy of all God has done to save us in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3. 
all these spiritual blessings in, every, in the heavenly places. We, cannot, we can live unworthy of that. And you know what, that, you know what that's like, right? It, it's as if you as a parent or, or as a friend were to give a great gift to someone. Maybe, think, think of your most precious possession. And you give that to them. Maybe it's a, a car. And you had a car and you kept it and you planned to give it to your son or your friend at one point and you gave it to him. And they brought it back a day later or a year later and it was just ruined. I mean, the seats were torn up. There was food all over the floor. There was dents all over the car. It wasn't running well. They didn't take care of it. And it wasn't because they had an accident. It was through deliberate neglect. Would you not be offended? I mean, would you not say, Good grief, I gave you this precious gift, this precious treasure, and look what you've done. You just squandered it. You didn't take care of it. That's what God has given to us in the church, folks. He's given us these great and precious promises, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and he's entrusted to us. He said, okay, church, here you are. I've given my spirit to you. I've given my gospel to you. I've given my promises to you. You have everything you need to be everything I've called you to be. And through neglect, we just don't tend to it the way we need to. And as a result of that, the church decays and it doesn't reflect God the way it should. And so that's why Paul's writing in verse one, remember your calling. See, If the person who received that gift from you, going back to our illustration, if the person who received that gift from you was really important to you and you loved them, I mean, imagine receiving that car and you're just blown away as a 16-year-old that your dad or your mom or your grandparents or your friend would give you such a gift. You're just blown away. Like, wow, what love, what selflessness. I mean, why would they do that for me? And then you're just overwhelmed with gratitude and thankfulness to them. The chances of you treating that car well dramatically increase, don't they? And that's the way it is with our God. He doesn't give us the keys to the car and say, you better not wreck it or I'm going to chop your head off. You better take care of it. You know what kind of work I've put into this? No, that's not our God. Our God is a lavish giver and he's given us these things. And he says, I love you. And we love him. And so as a result of loving him, we love what he loves. And so Paul says, consider your calling. Consider what God has done to save you. And then walk in a manner worthy of that. He says in verse three, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You notice those words, verse one, I urge you. That's a strong word in Greek. And then verse three, eager. So he wants us to, 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 to work at this. He says, if you love God, if you love his glory, if you love his name, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've been called. I eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It takes intentional effort. We're going to have to make haste, be busy, be zealously engaged to make this a reality. Unity takes work. Unity takes work. Ephesians 4 tells us that Christian unity is something that we ought to maintain. Verse 3, in other words, it's something we already have that we need to keep strong. So unity is not something that we're working for. It's something that we have that we need to maintain. But notice, that's not the whole story in Ephesians 4. Look at verse 13. Ephesians 4, 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Wait, I thought you said, Pastor Mark, aren't we already united? Verse 3 says we are already united. We are eager to maintain the unity. But verse 13 says, until we all attain the unity. So do we have it or do we not? Well, both. It's a given and it's a goal, right? It's something we have to protect and something we need to possess. It's something that we lack and it's something that we must pursue. So the unity that we must pursue is the visible expression of what we already have. 
You got that? That's the difference. Okay, so the reason that there's two different ideas here, verse 3, we already have unity. Verse 13, we have to attain it. The reason there's two different kinds of unity spoken of here is that Christian unity as in in one, is, one sense in, is in one sense already accomplished, and in another sense it isn't. To maintain unity and to pursue unity are not contradictory to each other. What he's saying is, you already have it, but you don't have it in the way you need to have it. You need to pursue a fuller, more visible expression of the unity you possess. That's critical. Because either one of those will cause us to lose heart. It will. It will. Here's how. If you believe you don't already have it, unity's too hard a work to try. But if you believe you already have it, then what's the point of working? We already got it. You see what I'm saying? So what Paul says is maintain it, fight for it, work for it. You already have it, but there is a fuller, more visible reality that needs to be manifested. What do we mean by that? Okay. Is this church everything it needs to be in displaying the unity and diversity of God? You say, no, of course not. We'd be proud to say that. No. But do we really have everything we need in order to pursue that? Absolutely. We have everything we need to be everything that God's created us to be. The reality is though we're not there yet. And we still have to pursue it. There's not enough economic diversity in our church. There's not enough... um, this, there's not enough unity around Jesus and the things that we hold the most in common. There's not enough unity around his mission. We still operate too much at the level of hanging out with people who have our jobs and our family backgrounds and our skin color and our culture and all that. I mean, think about it. How much are you right now actively and purposely loving people who are radically different from you? Radically different socioeconomic status, different language, different, different culture and class, different family background, everything. When that happens, and that's happening in increasing levels and more and more and more and more among all the people of God, then we're getting closer to attaining it. But we got some work to do. And Paul encourages us with that. Look, that's the reality for all of Christ's churches. That's not unique to Heritage Baptist Church. It's not like, oh, we're the one that, yeah, we're the minor league team, still trying to get it together. No, we're the major league team. We're on Team Jesus. We got the unity. We're we're seeking to maintain it, but we're not where we need to be. And so Paul is exhorting us and urging us, consider your calling, brothers. Consider all that God has for you. Be eager to maintain it, but keep going after it. So that's, that's the first thing. We have to consider and be compelled by the greatness of our calling. And if we're in love with what God has done for us, if we are amazed with what he has done to save us and how and his purpose to unite all things in Christ and to do that by displaying his manifold wisdom to the principalities and powers by the unifying of a people in the midst of diversity. We consider, and we're called to that. We've been bought for that. We are part of that. We are in that game. Then we will devote ourselves to that. So to maintain unity, then we have to focus on two areas, what we believe and how we behave. And that's what we're going to look at the next two points. Unity is not, not, not passive. It's very active. It's not something we create, but it is something that we have to keep and push in and grow in. And here's the key point uh, under this heading, this first point. If unity is not proactively pursued, it will be eventually destroyed. If unity is not proactively pursued, it will be eventually destroyed. It's just like anything in life, right? You don't take care of it, it'll fall apart. It's true of your house, true of your body. It's true of our culture. It's true of work. You don't take care of it. It's eventually going to fall apart, and it's the same with the church. Now, not ultimately, it can't ultimately be defeated. Jesus Christ has his church, and it will prevail. But we can, we have a responsibility 
according to this passage, to seek to maintain what Jesus has established. Point number two, we must be Christ-like in our conduct. So in order to maintain unity in the church, point number one, we must consider and be compelled by our calling. Second, we must be Christ-like in our conduct. Verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So he's going to give us some character stuff here. He's going to talk about the ways we got to behave toward each other. I love this passage. It's so realistic. I love the Bible. I love that it doesn't sugarcoat life and that it assumes that Christians getting together who are trying to pursue unity in diversity are going to have problems with that. And it's not going to be easy. And so Paul just tells us, here's some stuff you need to keep in mind. Here's some behaviors you need to do. Here's some dispositions you need to have. I love this. Humility. Here's the first word. With all humility, and underscore that, all. It's not just with some humility. It's you're going to have to get really low. Every one of you. Lay it all down. Get really low. It's hard for me to bend much lower. Get really low. What's humility? The putting of others' preferences and desires ahead of your own. That is the problem in church division. All, he starts there. All humility. Keep in mind, believer, as you come into the church... Everybody else is ahead of you. Pastor, everybody else is ahead of you. Everybody. Deacon, everybody else is ahead of you. Member, everybody else. Everybody else. We are last. If everybody had that posture, we would be what God has called us to be. Tim Keller defines the essence of gospel humility like this. He says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. That's all humility is. It's not thinking more of yourself, like I'm really, really important. It's not thinking less of yourself. I'm just a terrible sinner. It's thinking of yourself less. Not even thinking of yourself. Thinking of others. So that's the first one. Gentleness. It's his second word. With all humility and gentleness. That's, okay, we've got to put away, got to not be harsh with each other. Got to be gentle. And believe me, that's not weak. Gentleness is not weakness. It's self-control. Gentleness is mastery over your impulses. Gentleness is being willing to respond in love and kindness in the face of Disrespect, ingratitude, feel like you're being taken advantage of. It means that we are relationally amiable. We're easy to get along with. We're friendly. We're not prickly or caustic. We're easy to work with. And when people interact with us, they encounter in us a willingness to please. Oh, I wish you could see things from my perspective as a pastor. Because we, yes, we're a church and we got some prickly and caustic folks. But by and large, the willingness to please that I meet in you is amazing. There's a disposition to serve, a disposition to help, a disposition to, to be relationally amiable, to be easy to work with. I don't dread conversations with you. If people dread conversations with you, you're not gentle. If people don't want to interact with you because they don't know what they're going to get from you, that's a problem. You're called to be gentle, easy to talk to, receptive. Is our God not like that with you? Is our God, does he meet, when you, when you talk to him, when you need something from him, does he tell you to sit down and shut up? Or is he welcoming to you? Is this not our Jesus? 
He's gentle and lowly of heart. When we come to him, we find him receptive. When we come to him, he doesn't scold us. And that's the way we're to be toward each other. Gentle, humble. Third word, patient. Boy, he's, he's preaching close to the vest here, isn't he? I mean, Paul's getting close here. Patience. This means we don't have to have everything we want right now. That person doesn't have to behave like I want them to behave right now. If people disappoint us, which they will, we don't throw them under the bus. To be patient, we must endure annoyance over a period of time. That's the way we all are. I know I am a massive annoyance to some of you, and I don't want to be that way. I don't. It's because I have holes in the fabric of my sanctification that still need to get worked out, and you do too. But we're patient with each other. Why? Because Jesus is so patient with you. How many times have you let him down and he doesn't treat you that way? Church, he does not treat us that way. When we let him down, he brings us in. He doesn't disown you. Jesus is humble, he's gentle, he's patient. And people who are not reflect that they are not in close connection with him. That's the most convicting thing about it. When I find myself being impatient or not gentle or proud, I'm showing that I'm not in communion with Christ. Now I can never, let me speak of communion in a couple different ways. You can never lose your vital communion to Christ, believer but you can certainly lose your experiential communion with them. And when you are not gentle, and when I'm not gentle, when I'm proud, when I'm caustic or prickly or difficult to talk to, which I can be at times, more times than I want to be, when, I, when we're that way, that, that, what that's saying to me big in big bright lights is, you need Jesus, you're out of fellowship with him. And I need to repent and return and say, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I've let my heart get so hard. I'm sorry that I've let my, my, my vision, my calling become so focused here and now. And what's happening and not happening right here, instead of pulling myself up and looking out into the future 15 million years from now and seeing what you're about in my eternity and, and being a part of this church and displaying the manifold wisdom of God to the principalities and power. I'm sorry, I've lost vision. I've lost the goal. I've lost, and I, and I just repent, and I pray that you would renew me. Oh, he loves to do that. And he does that for us again and again and again. Last word, love. Bearing with one another in love. Don't you love that? Literally, put up with one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. Christ has loved us, church, and we are called to love those whom Christ loved. Christ put up with us in love. He still does. Now, it's not an irritating put up with you. It's not a, ah, we should fix that. No, but it is a patient, enduring steadfastness that he commits to us. He, I'll love you and I'll never stop loving you. And that's what, we, that's what we're called to be and do for each other. I'm so glad that Paul said that we need to endure one another. That's just a real word for us. It frees us up, right? It fr- this whole passage, verse 2, frees us up to be utterly realistic about what life's going to be like in the church. Amen? It frees us up to be utterly realistic. You're going to sign up for a, for a life of cultivated humility, a life of cultivated gentleness, a life of cultivated patience, and a life of cultivated love. That's what you're signing up for when you become a church member. Amen. You know what you're signing up for? You're signing up to become like Jesus. That's what you're signing up for. It's not just this abstract set of virtues. It's Christ-likeness. That's what, we're, that's what we're saved for, right? To eventually be conformed to his image. And the church is God's factory for making that happen. Now, some of you might be saying, you know, I really don't struggle with this, Mark. You are making a, 
You're a pastor, I get it. You know, your heart's really invested in this and you care about the church. But I mean, I don't feel this way. I don't, I, I'm, not, I'm not struggling with gentleness toward, I like these people. I love them. I mean, they're nice to me and they say hi. And I mean, I like, I'm gentle. I don't have to be patient with anybody. I mean, I, I love them. I love everybody. Praise Jesus. <laughs> I love. Well, can I ask you a question? Is that your attitude because you don't know anybody? I'm, I, don't, I don't mean that to like, un, you know, sting or offend in any way the Holy Spirit didn't intend. I'm just at being honest. Sometimes we can say that, but it's because we're not really like worked down in the lives of people and like, like walking with them and, and, and living alongside of them and ministering with them and, and all that stuff. Because if that's the case, if you say, I really don't struggle with this, it may be, it may not, that's not the only reason, but it may be because you're not really plugged in and invested in the life of the church beyond Sunday morning. And that's not God's will for you or desire for you. Because this command is meant to mean something to you. And right now it doesn't. Because it's not a struggle. If you are doing ministry with people and in community with people, you will get frustrated with people. Mark it down. If you are in community with people and on mission with people and in ministry with people, you will get frustrated with them and they will get frustrated with you. The closer you are to the church, the more these commands resonate with you with necessary impetus. They're like, yes, I need that word. Yes, I need that word because that brother is bothering me. That sister is disturbing. You know, that's, you need it. But if, if this is just all still up here for you, I would call you to get plugged in to the church, be on mission with the church. But then there's others, and you say, you know, and there's others in this room who I'm sure this is true of. You've just been burned, you know? And we, we meet people like that as pastors who have just been burned by the church. You know, like they were dealt with harshly. They, when they came to church, they didn't meet gentleness. They met harshness. They didn't meet patience. They met impatience. When they came to the church, they didn't, um, you know, uh, enjoy uh, love. They, they felt like what they received was being snubbed and snuffed. And so they pushed the eject button. They're just done. I say, I'll, I, you know, I'll, I might come to church once in a while. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll be, but I'm not really going to plug. I'm, no, it's too costly. I mean, I got hurt. And I would just say to those people, that's what this passage is for. That's why this verse is in the Bible. Because stuff like that happens in the church. And you've maybe unintentionally pushed the eject button on God's redemption project for you. Because you've been hurt, because you've been hurt is all the more reason to stay. See, we, have, we live in such a thin-skinned age. You look at somebody wrong and they're, they're gone. But the church is made up of thick-skinned, Holy Spirit and dwelt lovers. They got thick skin and soft hearts. Would that God would provide all of us that. Would that we would be a people of thick skin and soft hearts. I'm praying that will happen and praying that God will increase it. Such qualities can only be accomplished in us by the Spirit, brothers and sisters. So we got to lean in and rely upon the Spirit. And He will produce those things in us. They're the fruit of His Spirit, right? That's the fruit. Humility, gentleness, patience, love. Listen, you might say, yeah, I'm far from that. I am too. I'm far from what the Bible calls me to be in terms of humility, gentleness, patience, and love. But here's my hope. The spirit of the living God lives in me. And he lives in you. And the gospel is true. And God's purpose is to stick with you and to produce these qualities progressively, slowly, painfully, but surely in you over the course of your lifetime. Don't expect a quick fix, but don't push an eject button either. Lean into community, lean into ministry, lean into mission. And when things start happening and it starts getting messy, market stuff's going to start getting good. Because where I have been involved in messes that have been frustrating to me and made me want to push the eject button, 
when God has restored me to sanity and helped me keep my wits about me, good, great fruit has come out of that. And it's been produced by these kind of things. Humility, patience, gentleness, love. May God increase those things in our lives. Thirdly and lastly, we must be controlled by our commonality. We must be controlled by our commonality. So we've seen we've got to be compelled by our calling. We've got to be Christ-like in our conduct. And we've got to be controlled by our commonality. Notice in verses 4 through 6, seven times he uses the word one. Let's read those verses together. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What's Paul's point? Commonality. (laughs) This is our shared experience as a church. That sevenfold use of one underscores unity. And notice it's Trinitarian, isn't it? Verse 4 is on the Spirit, what the Spirit has done to bring about us united to one body with one hope, one Lord, Jesus Christ, one faith and baptism, and then one God and Father of all. Verse 4, the Spirit. Verse 5, the Lord Jesus. Verse 6, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you got this Trinitarian idea again. Paul is very concerned that the body of Christ understand itself to be Trinitarian. We're trying to reflect a Trinitarian reality here, unity and diversity. So one body, we are a part of one body. That is, we share a common existence in Christ's church together. We are one spirit. We share a common work of the spirit in us. The spirit raised us to newness of life, gave us faith in Christ, and united us to Christ, indwells and seals us. All of us who are believers have that same Holy Spirit. One spirit. One hope. We share a common hope in Christ. We're all heading toward the same direction. We're heading toward the same destination. New heavens, new earth, where righteousness dwells. That's our hope. Uniting of all things together in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. Where he reigns sovereignly, rules over all. That's our hope. Come Lord Jesus. Is what we pray together as a church, collectively. One Lord. He's our master. He's our king. He gets to say. He's the head of the church. He's the chief shepherd. One faith, I don't think this is mainly a reference to the objective content of our faith, but rather the subjective experience of faith. We all have exercised faith in Christ. We are all hoping and trusting in Christ alone. Nobody who's a part of the church has any other faith than the faith of Christ, faith in Christ. We have one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith. One baptism. We share a common experience of being baptized spiritually into Christ. This is what Romans 6 talks about. This is displayed in water baptism. I don't think water baptism is primarily the reference here, but water baptism signifies the reality that's being expressed here, namely oneness with Jesus, union with Christ. And then one God and Father. We're all adopted children of the same God. We all got in the same way. And notice this language. God is over all, verse 6, through all and in all. We need to see that about each other. We need to say God is over us as a people. He rules and reigns over Heritage Baptist Church. We want his rule, his sway, his dominion, his rights, his will. We want that to be actualized in the life of our church. He's also through us. We want him through us, working through us together as a people. And he's in us all. So you have this Trinitarian, this Trinitarian idea. And what Paul is stressing is the commonality of what we all have. See, this is why it's so important that we understand and value what we all share in common. See, we as we at Heritage Baptist Church, we understand doctrine is important. It's hugely important. But not all doctrine is of equal significance. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, I write to you that which is of first importance, the gospel that I preach to you. So that's why we keep it first. We want to keep it first importance. Jesus talked about in Matthew 23 when he was rebuking the Pharisees that they didn't understand the weightier matters of the law. And churches and our church can go all wrong 
if we invert those things, if we start talking about all that were different from the body of Christ, all the ways that we're not in common with other believers, all the things that, that make us unique and special. Jesus is not interested in making us unique and special. He's unique. He's interested in making us one. One. Which is, we need to value that which is of first importance, that which is of most importance, the gospel and our common experience of salvation in Christ. That's what Paul's wanting to remind the believers about in Ephesus. Let me close. Brothers and sisters, worship team, you guys can come on up. Let me close with this. This, this brothers and sisters, will, will help us to maintain unity. If we consider our calling and are compelled by it, if we are Christ-like in our conduct, and if we are com- controlled by our commonality. And here's what this perspective will provide for us. Let me just close with this little example that Brian Chapel gives in a message on this sermon. He says, when I look at a brother whom I believe is wrong in his perspective or has wronged me, I must look behind, behind the eyes of one who has hurt me or is angry with me because he believes the offense is mine, and I must see Jesus indwelling him. This is a person for whom Christ died and in whom the Son of God lives. My brother in Christ is infinitely valuable to God, and therefore I must honor him with regard from my heart, with the words of my mouth, and with the works of my hands. Each of us for whom Christ died is called to love beyond differences of race or class or perspective or personality. I am called to say to all those in Christ Jesus, you are my brother. You are my sister. We have the same father. Come, let us love one another beyond our differences for we have the same identity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for taking us individually, saving us by your purpose, and uniting us in this season, for however long you will, into this body as Heritage Baptist Church. And we pray that we would be a display of unity and diversity to Owensboro, Kentucky, to each other, to our, to our county, to our state, to our country, and that all of your churches would grasp this vision in a deeper way. The unity that we have in Christ, the diversity that you've called us to reflect, and we would do all that for the glory of your great name. Amen.